Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. In her latest book, Chico author Jennifer Jewell takes us on a year's journey that mirrors the life cycle of seeds, examining them from a scientific, economic, and cultural perspective. Gardener, gardening educator, and advocate Jennifer Jewell is the creator and host of the national weekly public radio program and podcast, Cultivating Place. She was honored by the American Horticultural Society for Outstanding Horticultural Journalism. She's written two previous books, The Earth in Her Hands and Under Western Skies. For The Earth in Her Hands, she won the Council on Botanical and Horticultural Libraries 2021 Award of Excellence in Biography. Today, I'm going to ask the host of our locally produced show, Cultivating Place, about what we sow on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. Jennifer Jewell, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be back, Nancy, and um, really, yeah, always happy to be in conversation with you. Well, I remember back in 2007, and I think I even, maybe it was the first time you came in the station, and Joe Lukshevitz was the program director, and you were presenting this idea for a garden show. Right, right. And when I learned from your book that you only moved to Northern California in 2007, you must have just stepped out of the car and right straight to the radio station and say, hey, I've got this idea. It kind of did happen that way. Um, I moved here in August, and I think it was September. I was driving maybe the girls to school because they were little then and uh, heard a, uh, you know, sort of PSA for PSA writers, uh, a call for volunteer PSA writers from the station. And I thought, wait, public radio is where I want to be talking about gardening, not on uh, the page of a glossy magazine. And Which is your background. Which is my background. Uh, after graduating with a degree in uh, world literature and then working as a writer and editor, I had started... I probably 10 years in writing about gardens for glossy shelter magazines around the world. And I just was more and more disillusioned by the way they were um, portraying gardens and gardeners and really perpetuating this idea that they are kind of commodities you can pick up uh, on the weekend and to make your life look more beautiful. And that objectification and commodification really irked me more and more, especially I think maybe as a young mother, because that was so not the value of engaging with plants and life cycles and the land that I wanted my daughters to see. And I, uh, coming from a gardening family, I just, I really didn't see gardening that way. And I, most of the gardeners I knew didn't engage with it that way or see it that way. And uh, I wanted to be a voice for that lifelong relationship variety of gardening. Well, I was taken back to March 17, 2020. Mm. <laughs> and I remember where I was. I was at work and suddenly I was like, okay, go home. Everybody in California has to go home now. And <laughs> Where were you when everything shut down? Right. I was actually on the road. I was in the first couple of weeks of a, of a cross-country book tour for my first book, The Earth in Her Hands. And uh, when the California—I mean, we knew it was coming, right? So we were on the road. I, was, I had been up in Seattle. I had been in Portland, Oregon. I had been here in Chico for the launch of The Earth in Her Hands. And then we got on a plane to be in uh, a couple of places in Massachusetts. I was at Harvard's Arnold Arboretum and uh, a couple of other places. And I was supposed to go into New York City to interview Jamaica Kincaid uh, about being one of the women in the earth in her hands. And the lockdown came and m m my partner John and I were like, what are we going to do? And I... I 
actually drove from the Rhode Island coast where we had hunkered down in somebody's house. And I drove myself into New York City. And the whole time, the New York Botanical Garden had like kept going back. Like they didn't know what, nobody knew what to do, nobody right? Did. So so they were like, yes, we're on. No, we're not on. Yes, we're on. Yes, we're on with just the two of you, no actual other people. And so it was, it was the, it was very surreal. But the point here is not that. The point here is that we realized we had to get on a plane, travel back to California because the world was going into shutdown. And one of the consequences of this was that because we thought we were going to be on the road for six to eight weeks, we had not planned a spring garden. And all of a sudden, we had our whole spring and summer, and as we know, a couple years, handed back to us in a completely different form. And so our, our really, our one of our first thoughts was, we need to buy seeds to plant when we get home so that we have a spring garden. And we got on... You might on, mention that John now knows about seeds also. So both yes. of you are very knowledgeable about yes. gardening. Yes. So he, so, is a, he is a plantsman and previous... Uh, specialty mail order nursery owner, and then now a native plant and habitat garden designer and installer. Um, and so gardening is very much a part of both of our, our lives. And he is, in fact, by far and away the better vegetable gardener. He's in charge of like when we get those seeds. And we went online you know, on our computers in Rhode Island, waiting for me to drive into this surreal environment of New York City in lockdown. And we kept getting these auto responses of out of stock, out of stock, overwhelmed, like can't answer this right now. And it was a real like alarm bell ringing in our heads of like, wait, what? You can't get seed right now? And, you know, I mean, I'm never going to be a sufficiency gardener. I'm never going to feed my two-person household, <laughs> let alone a four-person household, on what I can grow in my home garden. But to not be able to purchase seed to at least grow a little bit of it was a like a serious trigger for anxiety over just general survival. Whether it was a realistic like worry about survival you know, who's to say, but it was a trigger. And all of a sudden, it brought into a focus I had never had before on the state of seed in our world. Like, where does it come from? Who is growing it? Who's in charge of it? What is happening to it? Because at that moment, it was very clear to me that our collective survival in all kinds of ways is very dependent on a healthy and accessible seed supply. Well, many years ago when my husband and I were living in the city, we decided we don't know anything about growing vegetables and having a garden, so let's move to the country. And we did. And one thing, he was concerned about the economy, and uh, we read that uh, if the economy gets in bad shape, you should have tools, garden tools, hoes, and so forth, shovels. And so uh, we thought about that. We should keep those on hand. But we didn't think about seeds. I mean, I, mm. I didn't. And yet when all this, uh, the COVID came on, I did hear people are buying more seeds. In fact, there's a, a relationship between economy and seeds. And what is that relationship, Jennifer? Well, it's, an, it's a really fascinating one, both economically but also psychologically, in that when the economy goes down, the turn towards gardening and seed purchasing goes way up. But the, the irony of that is it is a thousand times more expensive in time, labor, and costs for us to try and grow each of our own individual foods as a whole. <laughs> like one tomato out of my garden is going to cost me, when you figure it all out, is going to cost me 
a hundred times more than buying it at the farmer's market where some incredibly adept farmer has focused their skills and their work on this exact thing, right? So I had that precise experience. It it happened to be tomato plant. I thought, my gosh, this is the most expensive tomato Uh I ever Uh ate in my life. Yeah. It's like knitting your own sweater. Like, you know, it's the the economy, the economics of it don't actually make sense for most of us if we are not growing at scale. Um, but there is still this human impulse, I will say, just like I say in my program, there is this human impulse to want to at least know how to engage with feeding ourselves, even if it doesn't economically make a lot of sense to us at this point in our industrialized evolution. Uh, My guest is Jennifer Jewell, and she is a gardener herself and a garden advocate, a garden educator. And her book, her newest book, is What We Sow on the Personal, Ecological, and Cultural Significance of Seeds. And what do we—I never realized that I needed to know about seeds. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to have a garden, but um, I didn't know anything. We'd just watch out the window and say, oh— uh, our neighbor is uh, planting spinach seeds now, so let's go plant spinach seeds. So what do we need to know about seed, and then what should we know? And that seems like that would be the the same. Well, I think it depends. You know, what, what became clear to me in this moment in March 2020 is that there was a lot as a gardener, a, a person who considers myself a fairly knowledgeable, informed gardener, that I didn't know about seeds, about uh, some of their simple biology and then some of how they function in our ecosystems and then how they function in our food systems and our economic systems. And all of this, to some extent, uh, I, I thought, well, I should know more. I should do some of this research and put my, you know, put my reading and my speaking and my interviewing where my mouth is that if I if I should know, then probably most gardeners would also like a little uh, primer, as it were, on what the state of seed is in our world. And so I, I essentially dedicated this year to trying to educate myself more deeply into these different facets and, you know, I think one of the things that is clear from the book, this is not a how to grow your garden from seed. This is not a how to save seed book. This is not a how to anything. It is really, it became a personal and philosophical exploration of what is our responsibility as stewards to the world around us and where does seed fit into that. I think that's the easiest way to put that. And it it became clear to me, not only in my own life, but in interviewing so many seed keepers around the world, that it is a deeply personal, ancient relationship that humans have with seeds and their plants. And when you think about it, because I'm a gardener, we spend a lot of time thinking about the foliage or the root or the flowers, like those are the flashy things. But by and large, most of the plants we depend on are born of seed. And so when it all comes back to it, it's the seed we need to care for most specifically. And so I think that's one of the things we need to know is we need to say what are we not paying attention to in our horticultural world, in our economic world, in our cultural world? And there are so many things that we're being asked to try and pay attention to and be diligent about. But as a gardener, for me, and someone who's very concerned about the interface of horticulture and the ecology of our world and biodiversity loss and you know, the extinction of species and climate change, all of a sudden seed seemed like this pivotal element because, and I I say this in the book, but if you think about the elements, what we consider the four elements, right, earth, air, fire, water, those don't make our our, 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 our planet livable. It is adding seed to those that makes the planet livable. 
And so this was a real epiphany for me. Like it was a come to Jesus, aha, like, oh my gosh, I have not been educated or paying attention to this exact topic. And so I spend a year delving into it. And I I go on all kinds of different um, circuitous, sometimes uh, trails of, you know, okay, the biology of seed, okay, the study of seed, okay, the, the, like the saving of seed, whether it's you and me gathering seed in our garden and putting an envelope in our drawer, or it's, you know, the USDA having one of the world's largest seed banks uh, for conservation in the, the country. And then I talk about seed selling and the history of seed catalogs and seed commerce and seed law and uh, then I think a lot of people are aware of the concept of seed consolidation at these bigger market levels. Um, and then I, I kind of end with uh, the idea of the cultural significance of seeds, uh, which is a pretty weighty topic and and an, in, an interesting one. My guest is Jennifer Jewell. She has her own radio program about gardening And we are talking about her latest book about seeds. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Jennifer Jewell, and she is host of our locally produced program, Cultivating Place. And I was surprised that you know how many generations back you have had gardeners in your family, because I'm not my parents, but my grandparents each had a garden. It was no big deal. You just, it was kind of expected. Even if you didn't live out in the country, you lived, you had a garden in your backyard. So you had the advantage of being in a long line of gardeners, but it was sad to read about your dear mother, Jennifer, and it was so uh, touching, I guess is what I want to say. I'd like for you to actually read what you wrote about your mother and, um, and, and, and your dad, because you, um, you kind of were expected to be a gardener. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it was interesting because during this exact same year that I was studying the seeds, it was also very high on my mind and heart, my sort of emotional life, that <clears throat> I was going into a calendar year of my own life. Yeah, that's that, how your book is organized, by the way. I might yeah. mention that. Yeah. Um, is organized by months and seasons. And so in uh, early in the book, uh, I have a birthday and I turn 55. And I recognize the fact that I am very aware that it is the year in which I will outlive my own mother. And to me, one of the things that also became clear was that the way we see seed is often or is analogous in some ways to the way we see ourselves, right? That we each have a morphology, the way we look, and we each have a phonology, the kind of points in our life that we reach different maturation thresholds, whether that's, you know, when you hit puberty, when you get married, when you die is one of them. And so uh, this sort of my own personal phenological life to know that my mother died. Um, and as an avid gardener and 
I often say, the gardener who grew me, um, this was a really interesting parallel to me thinking about seeds and the kind of metaphor of what we seed in this world and um, what we sow, as it were. Um, where would you like me to start, right? Well, you've just told us that you were 55 mm -hmm. then, and you mentioned the symmetry of being 55 in 2020. And um, you said uh, it's been an odd, hard, illuminating, contracting, and expanding few years. So would you pick up there? Sure. My first thought on waking on my birthday morning was this. My mother, waking on her 55th birthday, had less than one year to live. She was a gardener, the gardener who grew me. She did not graduate from college. Through her life as a gardener, she was as knowledgeable and caring a gardener and human as I've known. I remember her cutting seed potatoes down to one or two eyes each and letting them sit on cookie trays overnight to callous over a bit before planting out the next day. I remember small porcelain teacups soaking her peas, sweet and edible peas, overnight to soften the smooth, dark seed coats and jumpstart germination. I wonder quite specifically... Had she known she had less than one year, and she knew she did not in all likelihood have very long being in the end stages of metastasized breast cancer, what seeds would she have planted differently knowing it was her last planting season? Yeah. Um, you tell us about your mother as a gardener, and she didn't graduate college, but your dad actually had a Ph.D. Yes, he was very well-schooled. <laughs> <laughs> and it was about uh, life. Yes. You say he was a wildlife biologist. Yes, he is a wildlife biologist. And so what was interesting in that marriage, and it's a particularly uh, rich theme for the work that I do now, is that interface between the mammalian world and the plant world and how they are, in fact, although frequently separated in our minds or in our studies, uh, they are so interdependent upon one another. And you, you cannot have one without the other for, for, for most purposes. So it was interesting to be um, swimming in water or growing up in soil that uh, required both of them. So um, you uh, say that you were raised in this very connected way. And you say it was not until hiking in the foothills of Northern California, my first year of living here, that both the miracle and the tangible life and importance of seed really landed and stuck and germinated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, which is kind of amazing, right? I mean, I'm in my, at that point, I'm in my 40s. And I'm on this hike with a wonderful man that many listeners, I hope, will have memory of, Dr. Wes Dempsey, uh, Emeritus Professor of Biological Sciences from Chico State. And he was just a very generous and big-spirited human. But we were on a hike up into the, you know, wildlands of Upper Park, and I had specifically gone on this hike to try and familiarize myself much more fully in the native plants of this area, very different than the native plants of Colorado, very interesting to me. And I wanted to know names and, and histories and ideas. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a grown woman with a very, you know, I don't know, prestigious college degree. I'm a gardener. I have gardening history in my blood. I have wildlife biologist father. I know what a seed does, right? I know this. But on this hike, Wes Dempsey, like, found this big gray pine cone, and he n sort of went to pick it up, and he showed it to the group, and he's like, look at this. And then he knocks it on a stone, and out pop these pine nuts. And he peels the seed coat off of one of the, the pine nuts, and then he takes his pen knife, and he slices it in half. And then he shows us the little seed. And in a pine nut, just as it happens to be, this isn't true of every plant, but 
there is this little silhouette that looks like kind of a line drawing of a pine tree in this tiny little nut. And it was at this moment in my life, Nancy, that I was like, oh my gosh, that's true. That whole huge tree, hundreds of years old, like all the information to grow that tree is in this tiny nut. And it was another moment of like, what? Wow. Because you kind of know it, but until you really think about it and like get the like incredibleness of that, like we just don't give ourselves much time to enter into the magic that is that pine nut growing into that pine tree. It's really cool. And I like your word magic. And the fact that um, children have this natural curiosity. And it would be great if we could pass on this passion and this curiosity to the next generation. Yeah. And I I think we do... uh, There's efforts, right? I mean, I think many of us will have the memory of a Dixie cup and some little bean plant germinating in your classroom. That's very cool. But it's it's the continued, like, being able to see that and having people show it to you and having it be a value or important way of seeing the world that we lose in as we get older and busier and most of our values are focused on productivity and I, I don't know yeah well uh I wrote down some quotes in your book okay. that I think would surprise people what uh here's one I feel sure that gardens and gardeners can save the world. I do. <laughs> I really, really do. If we do it right, you know, and one of, uh, one of the great focus points of, of cultivating place is this idea of exploring the different ways that people garden really well in the world. And by that, I mean they're not just growing their own plants really well organically and for the birds and the bees, but for the greater good of our world, whatever that means to them. And there's a hundred million different ways to do it, Nancy. Well, I grew up in a state where uh, the Yankees were the enemy during the Civil War, and there was this guy named Sherman who marched through Georgia. And I, I was too young to realize, well, he wasn't there to kill people. He was there to kill the mm. crops and the way of feeding themselves. Mm. And that people say, okay, we surrender. And and then uh, another thing that you mentioned in your book, too, that I hadn't thought about, um, when Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark out west, I don't know what I thought their purpose was, I guess just to explore, but you tell us why he sent them. Well, in large part, it was to learn about and collect seed and plant material to bring back in order to cultivate it, in order to grow more and learn about it and you know, appropriate it for the purposes of, you know, I think in Jefferson's mind, I don't know, but I mean, there's a thousand ways to look at Jefferson. He's a complicated soul (laughs) and uh, history. Um, But, you know, the idea that if you control plants and if you control the food from those plants, you can control the world. And I think that's one of the ways gardeners can save the world is by dispersing that knowledge and that power over a great many people uh, doing hopefully the right thing by the environment, the economy, and their collective communities. Well, I learned things that I didn't think about. Seeds, for example. Um, I know that they would be aware if I put water on them, but you say seeds are also sensitive to light. Very, yeah. Uh, And I think about plants. I know plants are sensitive to light, but even if, if they're in the soil, Yes. So it's that's kind of cool. And one of it the is. like sad but interesting ways that this became very apparent to me was uh, post the campfire in 2018. So, you know, as I started this journey in uh, 2020, doing this research and thinking, one of the things that became clear was how much I did already know, but I hadn't really put it all together. And so the experience post-campfire in watching the soil regenerate this seed bank and the volume of material in that seed bank was just a 
continual epiphany of what is there, what will regrow, why does it regrow, why do some things not regrow, and that kind of led me into the interviews with seed bank um, seed bank directors, official seed banks like the USDA Seed Bank in Fort Collins, which has a long and complicated name, uh, or you know the California uh, Botanic Gardens Seed Bank, but also like uh, ecological restoration workers uh, who are trying to handle the seed bank so that they get the native plant seeds that are there at their maximum, but they control the invasive plants that are also in the seed bank, and how do you minimize those? It was it became a really fascinating um, exploration into the many ways seed become important in our life. And you were saying some will grow and some won't. And, uh, for example, you uh, tell people about the float test. Yeah. Maybe people don't know about that. Well, one of the ways – so – when you are looking at seed, one of the things you are considering if you are going to collect it, save it to grow later is whether or not it's actually viable. Was it successfully pollinated? If it was successfully pollinated and a healthy seed is forming, has it been parasitized? Has something else come in to eat that seed or grow its babies on that seed? And one of the ways to tell if a seed is viable or if a whole batch of seed that is grown for the seed industry is viable um, is a float test. And that is you you put your seed in water and those seeds that float are, are not viable and those that sink have a healthy germ in the middle, an endosperm. Um, it's not 100% reliable based on different seed mechanisms. So some seeds are uh, created to float for quite a while uh, so that they can make it downstream or, you know, so that is, uh, but the, all of, one of the things that was just uh, miraculous over and over and over again, especially in this seat of Northern California, which is a biodiversity hotspot, is just the myriad ways that plants have adapted to form their seed, to have a, a seed that can survive the conditions that the, that plant lives in, and then the seed structures holding the seed that help it either be protected in the world or get dispersed into the world. I mean, it is all of human art and architecture and engineering put into, you know, like in the form of seed. It's crazy and cool. After a break, Jennifer Jewell and I will be back to continue our conversations about seeds. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Jennifer Jewell, and we're talking about her third book, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. And we learn a lot from your book. And for example, one thing that I always try to uh, eat seasonally, but I never thought about the fact that... Uh, Tomatoes out of season can affect bumblebees, and I so appreciate the bees that do our pollinization for us. And what would happen uh, to bees if we if we don't sink the seasons? 
Well, this was one of the interesting pieces of information that I ran into in and and I ran into a lot of them that made me think, wow, like in us losing connectivity to the lives of our seeds in direct ways in our own lives or the lives of our plants and and then their seeds is we have unintended consequences that we just don't think about. So one of the things that became clear was that, you know, in seed being grown at scale for us to have all the food we want all the time, uh, wherever we may be, whatever season it may be, is that things are then grown out of season. To grow something out of season means that you have to grow it in uh you know, contrived conditions like greenhouses. And of course, these are ancient mechanisms to extend a season or keep fresh food in the winter. You know, there there are good reasons why we have developed these technologies. But then sometimes you, you, you figure something out and you think maybe we have overreached with this exact adaptation so that we can have everything all at once, all the time. So there are certain plants in the world that have that are much better pollinated by a bumblebee and because a bumblebee can sonicate or have buzz pollination which uh, like triggers very tightly held pollen out of these plants stamens so think of tomatoes eggplants um, peppers anything that's in the solanaceae family and has that little dome of a, um, and I don't think peppers is actually in there, but eggplants, tomatoes, there are others. Um, one of our wildflowers is the shooting star that has the same form in the flower parts. The bumblebee goes and sort of latches onto it and the female that's collecting pollen, and then she vibrates at a very high frequency. And you can replicate this with a tuning fork uh, if it's close enough to the stamens. And only with that frequency of vibration will the pollen release itself really well. So as a result of this, to grow tomatoes out of season so that we have them all winter wherever we are in our grocery stores looking red and fresh, they have, uh, scientists and growers have commandeered and grown bumblebees out of, uh, in colonies, like, you know, they're, they're raising them like livestock, and then they send them off to these greenhouses in um, places that often you wouldn't think a greenhouse growing tomatoes might be, like the far southern desert of California. And the bumblebees are put into the greenhouses in order to provide the pollination services. But one of the unintended consequences of this, which in large part sounds very similar to honeybee growing or uh, cattle raising or pigs or sheep or chickens, anything that we grow like livestock, is that the bumblebees that were raised, uh, they were collected, native bumblebees to California actually were collected, sent off to Europe, you know, hatched at scale so that then they could send colonies back for these pollination services. Some of them picked up a pathogen in uh, Europe and then they escaped from the greenhouses into the wild populations and they contaminated the wild populations of specifically, they believe, uh, Bombus occidentalis and Bombus franklini. And these were very, very, very common native bumblebee species in our region. And post this pathogen being introduced, they are now almost non-existent. And uh, the California Bumblebee Atlas and the Xerces Society are working very hard to try and identify where healthy populations might exist, but they are struggling. And so then I think to myself, when I put this all together, I'm like, is that really worth it to me? Is that tomato out of season from a greenhouse far, far away? Is that just like poorly paid or treated labor for any of our food anywhere? And for me, the answer is no, that is not worth it. 
My guest is Jennifer Jewell, and she is an expert on seeds. <laughs> I'm not sure we could ever say I'm an expert on seeds, but I know a whole lot more than I did. Well, uh, but you are knowledgeable enough that I would like your opinion on GMOs. You know, this is a tricky one, and it is a, a very contentious uh, conversation in in the horticultural and certainly the big agricultural world. And there are lots of people I admire and respect who very much see the benefits of GMO science and technologies, improving yields, improving uh, world hunger, perhaps. And I appreciate that belief in this science and in this technology. And I, I see the benefit and its possibilities. Where... I struggle with them and therefore fall on the seriously anti-GMO side at this point and will not ever knowingly purchase GMO seed or plants or foods, um, although we are all ingesting them in lots of different ways already, is that the technology requires the morality of the humans behind it to be used efficiently and 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 morally in this world. And at this point, especially in the US, I personally do not see enough regulation and oversight and testing to make this worthwhile for us. I do not believe that to date we have been shown that we will improve yields or improve environments sufficiently to balance out what we are losing. And some of what we are losing is uh, the biodiversity and the integrity of crops contaminated by GMO or um, GE uh, genetics out in our world. So, for instance, there is an example um, of GE wheat, which has not been approved for human use um, and or sale in the U.S. But even though it's not approved, it has been planted here. And already that GE genetics, those GE genetics in wheat have contaminated and shown up in the genetics of what is not supposed to be GE, GMO wheat in Oregon. And so the question becomes, the science might be good, but can we control it the way we want to be able to control it so that we never endanger historic or heritage genetics of corn across our country or wheat or or any other plant for that matter, Nancy? And in my opinion, after this research, I don't believe we we have those controls in place. Well, we don't realize a lot that you present, uh, and and I have a feeling that you're not telling us what to do. You're giving us information, and based on this information, we can make the best decisions. Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, what do you have to say about uh, lawns? Maybe you want to read some of it, because you have a string of adjectives that I found quite amusing. Yes. <laughs> um you know, I, I think anyone who's ever listened to Cultivating Place will know that I am not a fan of the the typical lawn, I will say. And so what I mean when I say that is a monoculture of grass turf that is like Kentucky bluegrass, let's say, or, I mean, there are other varieties, that is a non-native grass that is overwatered, overfed, overmown, overblown, and is an environmental desert. It's a, it's, and I shouldn't say desert. It is a wasteland for any diversity of creatures or soil life. Or, um, so that's, that's my concern. If you have greenish grass in your front yard that also has maybe some dandelions or some clover or some I don't know, a ridgeron or, and you don't fertilize it and you don't overwater it and you don't mow it to within an inch of its life, um, that actually could be kind of diverse. And it's not taking an enormous number of resources to keep it looking perfectly green and mown. Um, those, those 
you know, I'm, I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to use brand names, but, you know, in, in watching uh, big sports on TV, you will often see ads for the perfect green lawn, perfectly mowed, perfectly fed, perfectly treated with uh, insecticide and pesticide so it has no quote-unquote pests. This is an environmental nightmare, and it is a resource, an economic nightmare. And there are a couple of people that are making a whole lot of money off of that, but uh, not most of us. And most of us are just spending a lot of money on it. And as I say, so I'll... I'll <laughs> well, you know what, though? <laughs> yeah. You have told us. <laughs> I, think, I think somebody reading that, they might have been sitting there saying, well, one of these days I'm going to do something. I'm going to get rid of this green yeah. grass. Uh, but I think this is what I meant by you're not telling us what to do. But when we read that, we thought... Yeah, I really should. It might provide the motivation right. to, to change well, that. Well, and by and large, that green lawn is just a default placeholder. Like, you're not doing anything with it. If I have a little bit of lawn in my backyard, and it's kind of, you know, raggedy, uh, but it serves its purpose for dogs and kids and a little blank space. We all maybe need some of that. But if it's just a default placeholder, go ahead and plant a bunch of native plants and let them fill that space. I appreciate so much this book, and I think people will learn from it and even be motivated to make some changes. Appreciate that very much. I certainly was. My guest has been gardener, podcaster, show producer, Jennifer Jewell. Her latest book is What We Sow on the Personal, Ecological, and Cultural Significance of Seeds. Thank you very much. It's been a great joy to be here with you, Nancy Wigman. And next we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. When Jewish people begin a curse or a blessing, it most often starts with the two words, May you. This poem is titled, May you. May you always have enough. Enough music and dance to keep you enchanted till your very last breath. Enough family and friends to keep your feet planted on the ground while they lift you high. High enough to reach your loftiest goals that come from the deepest depths of your soul. Goals enough to keep you on your toes every day. Enough days filled with enough songs to keep you forever young. Enough youth for the thousands of books that will teach you to think and to realize your dreams. Enough dreams that you make real with enough laughter to light up 1,000, thousand suns. Enough food, enough warmth, enough wine to accompany every savored bath time. Enough chocolate-covered berries and rose petals strewn on satin-sheeted beds. Enough raucous pool parties and cozy sheer manchets. Enough silence enough stillness, enough wonder at the beauty of trees all around, enough waterfalls and beaches to endless astound. May you have enough sense to see the good in each moment. Enough gumption to grab and hold on to that good. Enough wisdom to increase it, enough courage and grace to share it and pass it around. Enough strength to create your own self-fulfillment in the face of pessimism, denial, and rejection. Enough of a spine to face down the energy vampires who would impose their own limitations, since you only demand your rightful place in the sun and there's no misappropriation. Know that you will always be enough. Enough of a friend. Enough of a helper. Enough of a you. You'll be smart enough. You'll be right enough. The right person at the right moment to close the deal. You'll be astute enough to know the value of any item or transaction. You're reliable enough, ready enough, and resilient enough to get up one more time. Then you're knocked down. Every. Single. Time. Because you'll always have enough time. Time to get up and dust yourself off. Time to make waves. Time to set up shop and make your mark on the world. Time to see the world and then see it anew. Time to stop and smell the roses and shuck off the cruelties of the world for one more day. Time to leave this earth a much better place. May you do enough of all that that your name is scribed in the book of life. And once it is written there, may we never forget that you were here. The Story of Chester 
Chester was a good old boy, a dog, actually. His abiding affection for me was something to behold. Whether I was on a ladder or in my tractor, Chester was there to guard me from my own propensity of self-inflicted harm. Chester came to me serendipitously late in his life. He was never given attention, nor needless say, attention. Chester never saw the inside of a vet's office. He was discarded by his owner to live in the backyard in a 30 by 40 chain link fenced area. Every three or four days, he was given a large amount of food that ignored and never being touched. Never a gentle hand, nor a word did he receive. I met Chester when I looked at the property he was on. It had just come on the market. A couple of days before the close of escrow, the property owner said they were tired of caring for Chester, for their son was going to have him destroyed. I just couldn't do it. I agreed to take Chester to live out his days in peace. Whether it was my good looks or charm, I'll never know. But when I gave Chester the freedom of the place, about an acre and a half, he wouldn't leave my side. No truer friend or companion could one want. For two years, our friendship developed. We gave each other love and companionship. He was always faithful to a fault. Then, with any misbred Rottweilers, he developed hysteria. He was about 12 years old, and I was advised that surgery was risky and inadvisable. We gave him medication to keep him comfortable. However, after time, it became apparent that he was in great pain and could no longer walk. But he would smile at me. Yes, Virginia, dogs can really smile, wag his tail, and be happy during our frequent daily visits. I came to the difficult decision that he needed relief from his obvious pain. As hard as it was, I knew that I had to put him to sleep. Chester knew. He did not want it to happen. He resisted getting into the car and fought going into the vet's office. The doc said they would take care of him. But, you know, I couldn't walk away from my friend in his last moments to die among strangers. I told the vet, no, I will go with him. I had to carry him into the exam room. Chester was calm until the injection. He understood what was coursing through his veins, and he fought it as I held him in my arms. He looked at me and softly whined and seemed to ask, Why? What did I do wrong? He fought it for what seemed an eternity. He then sighed and relaxed and died. This was one of the most difficult decisions and actions of my life that I learned. All life, no matter how insignificant, wants desperately to live and requires respect of that life. Old friends and loved ones do not die. They just go to a special place in our hearts to live with us forever. George Perry. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.